The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. How did the poinsettia become the Christmas flower? It's a series of intriguing stories full of human drama, mysteries, secrets, challenges, and world domination. Find out why every poinsettia plant sold today carries a critical pathogen that is a key to its success and is detrimental to all other plants. Also, we will learn how to be successful in selecting and growing your poinsettia year-round, along with having a few myths squashed. In this episode, Jim Faust tells interesting true poinsettia stories from their discovery to your own enjoyment at Christmas. One story involves searching out wild poinsettias in the middle of two drug cartel-controlled territories. Jim is a professor of floriculture physiology at Clemson University in South Carolina. He does research on greenhouse production of various flowering crops, teaches hydroponics and greenhouse production courses. He grew his first poinsettia crop in 1986. This is episode 139. The Unexpected Journey of Poinsettias from Mexico to Our Living Rooms with Jim Faust, an Encore Remix presentation on the Garden Question podcast. Jim, the poinsettia has taken an intriguing and dramatic trip to becoming today's Christmas flower. Where did that trip start? A lot of people would say it started in 1828. When Joel Poinsett, who was a South Carolina politician, sent the first living poinsettias out of Mexico to the United States, you could go back further and say the domestication of the poinsettia is most likely to have started in the 1500s under the direction of Montezuma in Mexico, the political leader of the Aztecs and is known to had the first botanical gardens in the world and had collected a lot of plants for use in medicine and as ornamentals. Aztecs are known to have developed quite a number of our important ornamental species. The evidence points pretty clearly that Joel Poinsett was not a botanist that would go out into the Mexican forest and collect wild plants. We think of botanists as purely interested in plants for their own sake and will collect all sorts of novelties. In that era, the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were quite a number of botanists traipsing around Mexico collecting herbarium specimens, taking these specimens and shipping them back to Europe, having botanists there give them botanical names. Poinsett was not that type of person. He really was a horticulturist, not a botanist. The distinction there is that horticulturists really are interested in plants for what benefit they may bring to society, economically or as a food crop or an ornamental. Poinsett was not going out into the wilderness and collecting unusual species. He didn't collect anything himself at all. He had people that he was guiding that would collect plants in the marketplace and ship them to the U.S. 
Similarly, he developed these relationships with nurserymen, particularly in the Northeast United States. This is 1820s. He would ask those nurserymen to send him plants from the U.S. to Mexico. In return, he was sending plants from Mexico to the U.S., looking to see how any of these plants could bring some economic value to a new climate. At that time, plants hadn't been transferred between the South America, Central America, and into the U.S. So all the species that people were coming across in the New World were unique, and especially to the Europeans, they were all new and different and exciting. We hadn't grown them in multiple locations before, so it's let's take this plant and grow it someplace else and see how well it does. If people want to buy it, if it produces a useful food crop. That's what Poinsett did. They collected plants in the marketplace shipped them in the Northeast and saw what would happen. Most of the plants were seeds or cuttings, grow them in some other climate and see if they had some value. For example, there are a list of plants that were shipped, things like avocados, rice, and wheat, quite a number of ornamentals that had no name at all. They would have packing slips for these big boxes of plants that would be shipped. They would just be described as a red flowering perennial or an ornamental tree. Actually, avocado was called an alligator pear. We think that the Aztecs had already improved the poinsettia is because the very first poinsettias that were sent to the U.S. quickly made their way to Europe and quickly made their way into botanical magazines where artists would draw beautiful botanical images of these new world plants and publish them in Europe. A journal called Curtis's Botanical Guide, something like that. In 1836, which is just eight years after Poinsett had sent the first plants to Philadelphia. The plant made its way to England, and it was an image of that plant drawn and published in these botanical illustrated guides. If you look at that picture today, and it's easy to find online actually, it doesn't look anything like a wild-type poinsettia. The red part of the flower is called the bract. The bracts are relatively small on wild types. The bract may be an inch wide and three or four inches long. These drawings that were made of these original plants sent north showed a plant that was much bigger bracted, much showier than the wild type. Either the botanical artist had a fantastic imagination or Poinsett sent a cultivated plant, plant that already had gone through decades or centuries of selection for attractiveness to humans. Poinsettia is readily sport. Spontaneous mutations will occur that results in bigger bracts commonly. Somebody simply saw a plant that was showier than the wild type, collected it, grew it in their garden, and like horticulturists do, they see an improvement, they'll propagate it and put it in their garden. Over perhaps hundreds of years, this selection process had taken place, found these plants in the marketplace because people landscaped their homes with them. This is what appears to be what Poinsett actually had already chosen to send to the Northeast. You ask, when did the Poinsettia started? Certainly, we start to be really aware of its history in the 1790s and early 1800s. It's pretty clear that the plant had undergone some of the domestication process perhaps centuries before that. I'm curious about the shipping process. You brought that up, and it's something I've always wondered about during those times when plants were collected in other countries and then shipped. Were they usually potted? My thought is, how do they water them? I'm thinking that a lot of that was ocean travels, and you've got to decide whether you're going to water a plant or drink water because you're surrounded by salty seawater. It helps to understand the drive for this and what these plants were used for. The main recipient of these plants was Bartram's Botanic Garden in Philadelphia. 
a lot of people are familiar with that name. It still exists today. Of course, we know John Bartram and William Bartram were kind of leaders in studying the, the peoples and the plants of North America. They started a business that was collecting New World species and selling them to Europeans. All these plants were new and exciting and different. People that love plants were super excited about all these new options. The Bartrams, they were actually in their third generation business within the family in the 1820s. They would ship plants in what they called Bartram's boxes. These are wooden boxes that are about three foot by three foot by two foot high. Pretty good sized box and they'd have wooden slats within the box to compartmentalize the different plants that were put into the boxes. Mostly they were shipping seeds into a leaf mold or um, compost, something to keep some moisture around them uh, while they're being transported. They also would dig up plants and send bare-rooted plants. And this is what we think was done with the poinsettia. The shipping time was too long because it would take a good month and it would be by sea transport to get a plant from Mexico to Philadelphia. Poinsettia cutting wouldn't survive that trip. Poinsettias are easily bare-rooted. To their mid-1900s, that was the primary way of shipping plants in North America was to dig up dormant canes or dormant rootstock and ship them around the country to start your poinsettia crop from the 1900s until the 1960s. When Bartram got the poinsettia, brought a lot of excitement. Who was buying this plant? Bartram had a catalog. The last catalog they published was, it was 1840, somewhere around there. It was the first time poinsettia had been listed for sale that we have any record of. Bartram was selling them for $2 a plant at that time. If you look at the Bartram catalog, it was impressive. They would have a hundred different varieties of geranium. It was a very extensive catalog with hundreds of species of common garden plants and more rare native plants. They would sell them and basically to wealthy families in the Northeast and Bartram's main market was in Europe. At that time, poinsettias would have to be in a heated greenhouse for the winter pretty wealthy families that had a greenhouse or what they called them stoves. They'd put the plant in the stove for the winter to keep it alive the, the following spring. How did the late 1800s look for the poinsettia? Did it make any progress or is it just filtering out into the different wealthy families? Throughout the 1800s, there were a few advancements, but it really wasn't a very common plant. Interestingly enough, there was a orchid hunter in the 1870s that was from Eastern Europe and he was collecting orchids across Mexico. He found a double flowering poinsettia. Double flowering is quite common in horticulture. For example, a wild type rose has five petals. You get a double flowering rose and it has a hundred petals because all of the reproductive parts in the center of the flower have become petaloid. They no longer function as male flowering parts like stamens. They display a petal rather than a male flower organ. This gentleman found a poinsettia that was double flowering. So all the reproductive parts in the center of the poinsettia that we refer to as cyathea, those become petaloid. So you had, instead of one array of petals that you see on today's modern poinsettias, you would have a hundred petals on each stem of the poinsettia. This plant was so highly desirable that there was a florist in New York City that actually paid him $1,000 in 1873 for one double flowering poinsettia. Gardening journals at that time were writing that we appreciate that Joel Poinsett sent this plant to the U.S. We like it. It is now being superseded by this new double flowering poinsettia. And from here on out, we only expect to see people growing double poinsettias. Of course, looking back at quite a bad prediction because most of us have never seen a double flowering poinsettia. They still exist. You do see them as landscape plants in Southern California. They've never made it into the commercial realm. 
They have a very poor post-harvest environment. The bracts fall off very quickly. It's a very interesting looking plant. We'll have to post a picture of it on your website so people can see it. It is beautiful. It has never made it into the commercial world. The U.S. patent system started in 1930. A double flowering poinsettia was patented in 1931. One of the first plants ever patented in the United States was a double flowering poinsettia. It still never became very popular. The 1900s, there wasn't that much growth and really was not seen as a Christmas flower. It was a novelty plant that people that had greenhouses would have it in their little conservatory amongst their house plants, or they may have an orange plant or lemons in their heated greenhouse. They might have a poinsettia in there, but it really wasn't a commercial plant. It wasn't associated with Christmas. We know that because if you do a search and look at Christmas cards throughout the decades, Christmas cards and postcards that Christmas became popular in the 1800s, You won't see a poinsettia depicted in any Christmas card prior to 1900. The 1890s, all sorts of flowers are shown in Christmas cards. The most common being holly, also ivy, mistletoe. You also see some odd things. There's a lot of spring flowers shown in Christmas cards in the 1890s. We have carnations, sweet peas, tulips, and roses are all showing up in Christmas cards in the 1890s. You fast forward just a decade or two, and by 1910, Christmas cards that had poinsettias were all over the place. It really was right at the turn of the century where this thing really started to become the, or at least a very important Christmas flower, if not the Christmas flower. Greenhouses were starting to actually grow them in larger numbers. Of course, greenhouses weren't real big at the time. The typical greenhouse, you would have a florist shop in the front of the building, and in the back, you'd have a glass house where you would have some potted plants, including poinsettia. You might sell begonias, Jerusalem cherry, and some foliage plants at Christmas. Poinsettia was certainly coming into its own in the early 1900s, so that really by 1920, most greenhouses recognized that there was a substantial market to be had by selling this plant at the Christmas season. That is really when numbers really took off. We had growers in Southern California where it could be grown year-round. Poinsettias in that era were very tall and lanky, so they could be sold as cut flowers because you can get a good two to three foot stem out of it with one flower on the top. You could also try to put it into a pot and sell it as a potted plant. It had some real problems as a potted plant. In the early 1900s, actually all the way up into the 1950s, the real problem with poinsettia was that the leaves would fall off immediately once you took the plant out of the greenhouse. If it got exposed to any cool temperatures, if it got exposed to low light environments like in a home environment, all of the green leaves would just fall off within 48 hours. Some growers would try to compensate for that. You would grow four individual plants, say an eight inch pot. All grow straight up so you'd have four flowers. In the middle of that pot, they'd leave a hole in the pot. And right before they would sell that pot to a customer, they would pop a Boston fern into the middle of the pot. That Boston fern would provide greenery in the lower part of the canopy where they knew the poinsettia leaves would all fall off. The bracts would always stay on. So you have red, pretty bracts at the top, but you have no foliage without putting this fern in the middle. There are pictures of that where these ferns are in the middle. It's giving you some greenery. The other thing people did, even up until the 1970s, would put pine boughs in a pot cut it and insert it in the pot to give you some greenery if the foliage fell off. It extended the shelf life of the plant. What changed that poinsettia that we see today doesn't look anything like that? That really started in the 1950s. The USDA... This has been episode 139. The unexpected... They hired a PhD plant breeder to improve the poinsettia. 
his job was to make this a more commercially viable product. At that time, USDA was doing this with quite a number of crops. They had one scientist dedicated to poinsettia, and he worked on it for 10 years. The quote that he had, which was pretty good, that it took 25 crosses. So he would do two to two and a half crosses a year. He would grow a crop for six months, do a cross-pollinate, grow another crop for six months. So he's growing poinsettias year-round. He said it took 25 crosses in order to get the junk out of the wild type, was his term. Mexicans had already improved it. It still had a lot of bad characteristics. It wasn't a, a real good product for the consumer. It took him 25 efforts of each time making selections to improve the performance of the plant. He looked at several different characteristics. So it was making the bracts bigger, picking plants that were more compact. They would flower in a pot and look better. They didn't get six feet tall. The yellow part that you see in the center of the flower, we call that the saithia, the true flowers. Those tended to be very open and airy. He kept selecting for those to be denser and more concentrated in the center. He really had a vision of what the modern-day poinsettia should look like. He made a significant improvement. His name was Bob Stewart, by the way. What he did then, and what USDA did then, we wouldn't do this anymore, is that they took all of his improvements and gave them to the growers and said, okay, we've done the baseline improvement on this plant. Now it's your turn to commercialize it. We've taken it 90% of the way there. Now you take it the last 10%. They simply turned over the plants to the industry. Nowadays, you would want to monetize that somehow. We don't give away plants anymore. They're way too valuable to be giving away. All of our breeding efforts, we want to get paid for that. In the early 60s then, they took their germplasm and handed it over to any grower that wanted to start their own breeding program. Several growers in the U.S. picked up on these nice improvements and then started taking the plant a little bit further. The very first improvement that was made was by a, a small Ohio grower named Jim Mickelson. He was an Ashtabula. He was making crosses and doing selections. The legend is that he didn't see anything he liked on his greenhouse bench, so he just let the plant sit there to die. Then he went in a couple weeks later, and there was one plant that still looked really good. This is an improvement. All the other crosses he made, the leaves had fallen off the plants. One plant still had good green leaves on it, called that trait leaf retention. That one plant had really good leaf retention, meaning you put it into a stressful environment, drought stress, low light, cold stress, and the leaves would stay on the plant reasonably well, much better than any variety that had been available up until that time. That plant he named after his father, Paul Mickelson, and introduced in 1963, swept over North America and Europe. Any grower, anybody that owned a greenhouse that was selling poinsettias had to have that variety because it was just so superior to anything that had been introduced earlier in the century. That took the plant the next level. Once the plant starts to have better consumer performance, it's a good-looking plant, and if it performs better for the consumer, sales are going to increase. Really, starting in the 60s, it became much more popular. The other thing that happened was we started to have plasticulture is what we call it, where you didn't have to have an expensive glass greenhouse because glass greenhouses are pretty costly to build. Once you start having plastic polyethylene films, then you didn't have to have quite as much money to build a greenhouse. And that really happened in the 70s. Once you have a plastic house, can grow a lot more plants in the springtime. Challenge greenhouse growers have always had is we have a naturally built-in market for the spring. People love to buy plants in March, April, and May. The problem is, what do we do with that greenhouse the other nine months of the year? We can start growing plants in January for March, April, May sales, but what do you do from July to December? What are you going to put in that greenhouse? You got to put something. Poinsettia was the thing that ended up filling up that space, became the counter crop to all the spring. 
we can sell the heck out of spring flowers. We can't just let this greenhouse set empty for six months. We have people that we're employing. We can't just lay everybody off after Mother's Day. We got to keep them busy. And so that's where the poinsettia is really always fit in as a way to keep labor busy so you don't have to lay off employees. A way to put something in the greenhouse may not make any money off of it. It's not one of your more profitable crops. Some growers would claim they lose money with every one they grow, but it's better to lose a little bit of money with every plant than have nothing to sell and lay your people off and then try to find workers again the next spring season. The mass market plants started to become much more commercially well-received in the 70s. Sales grew every year from 1970 all the way through the 1990s incremental increases in sales. A lot of that was you had plastic, you could grow the plant in a cheaper greenhouse. You had more commercialization of Christmas. We have box stores. Kmart was a big one. They would have poinsettias in there. They'd have hundreds of stores across the country and we have large growers that would supply those. The quality of the breeding and selection improved every decade. So that plant became better and better. There was some really good marketing done. One of the leaders in that effort, his name was Paul Ecke Jr. He was in Southern California. He had ties to people in LA. He would do everything he could to get the poinsettia on television every Christmas. I'm old enough to remember that throughout the 70s and into the 80s, we had a lot of Christmas specials on TV. Any celebrity worth their weight would have a Christmas special. Paul Ecke Jr. would get poinsettias on that TV screen wherever he could. So that plant was seared into people's psyche that this is the Christmas flower. Other examples would be he would always donate plants to news broadcasters, like nightly news, five o'clock, six o'clock news, so that when the panel of news broadcasters are on stage, there would be a row of poinsettias right in front of them or sitting on the counter next to them or behind them. One of the more well-known examples was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Every year, Johnny Carson would get on there and he would have a dialogue with Doc Severinsen about how you pronounce Ponsetto. They would debate over the pronunciation. Then at the end of the little bit, he would always thank the Ecke family for donating poinsettias for their display. That continued through the Jay Leno era, too. Jay would always recognize the Ecke family for having donated poinsettias for their set. They got the plant out there. It seared into people's minds that this is the Christmas plant. Growers really had no option at that point. They could grow other plants for the Christmas market, but people would not buy cyclamen. Cyclamen really is an easy crop for us to grow for Christmas because it likes cool weather. It's cheaper to grow because you don't have to heat the greenhouse as much. You can grow them, but people just associate poinsettia with Christmas. So that's what they purchase. Eckies started to realize that in the mid-1980s that they almost had built a bottleneck into the market where this plant was only valuable for three to four weeks in November, December start to recognize that maybe we shouldn't have painted ourselves into a corner because how do we expand sales if we can only sell this thing for three to four weeks out of the year? It would really be helpful if we could sell some in the spring. Why not sell some earlier in the fall? But when it's so tied to Christmas, you don't want to buy a poinsettia in August. That really limited the market that you could build because it was all bottlenecked into this very short market window. Today, this is still an issue that people in the poinsettia world deal with trying to expand the market. Christmas sales are flat for Poinsettia. We have not really increased sales over the last 15, almost 20 years. The sales have been fairly flat. They're good sales, but that's not an expanding market. So if you're in that business, you want to expand the market. How do you do that? One of the options would be to try to sell plants in October and November or earlier in November and sell them for, say, Thanksgiving. We breeders have introduced varieties that are orangey yellows, have that fall color. 
They're actually quite attractive plants. But it's still quite a stretch to get people to buy them for their Thanksgiving display because they still say oh, it's a poinsettia. The sales of those has not been outstanding, even though it's a pretty nice looking product, in my opinion. Fits with our Thanksgiving color scheme. The other one that you'll see almost every October, and we know October being the Susan Komen Breast Cancer Awareness Month, there has been breeding for poinsettias that are vivid pink. It's that same pink that you see football players all wearing in October, their gloves and on their shoes and basketball players wearing to honor that particular month and that cause. It's not uncommon to go into a produce store and go through the florist section and see vivid pink poinsettias for sale in October. They don't look as much like a regular poinsettia. The bracts are quite small. Beautiful plants. The stores won't call them poinsettias. They'll call them euphorbias because poinsettia is just way too fixed on Christmas. If we try to sell these in October, we'll give them a different name. Similarly, we have nice pinks and whites that we try to sell in the spring season sometimes, but that has never taken off very far. Even though they're spring colors, spring sales have never been good for poinsettia or euphorbias. How are you initiating those bracts changing color on time for those oddball seasons? We can flower a poinsettia any week of the year. We know the mechanism for triggering flowering. We can do that manipulation, do the exact same thing for chrysanthemums, and we do the exact same thing for cannabis. All three of those species are short-day plants, meaning they start the flowering process when the nights become long. It's a way for a plant to tell the time of year, basically. If you're a plant, you want to time your flowering to a certain season, and that season may be associated with desirable temperatures for flowering, or it may be linked with pollinators being available. With poinsettia, it being native to Mexico, you have wet and dry seasons. The poinsettia is native to what we call deciduous tropical forest tropical forests that have a significant dry season where even though it's a tropical forest, most of the plants in that forest defoliate because there's not water available. The wet season is in the fall. The plant is growing vegetatively and then it starts to get dry in December, January where the plant goes dormant. The poinsettia wants to flower at the end of that wet period, the beginning of the dry season. In about the third week of September, the night lengths are getting sufficiently long about that time, the night length is 12 hours long. In the summer, night length in North America is anywhere from 14 to 16 hour day, and then with that 8 to 10 hour night length. That night length gets longer and longer as we go from June 21st, the summer solstice, until December 21st, the winter solstice. When we hit the autumn equinox, September 21st, is when roughly the poinsettia now says, ah, now the night length is sufficiently long, I want to start the flowering process. Once that initiation signal starts, it takes eight to nine weeks for that flower to actually form and develop and become pretty. plant that starts the initiation process the last week of September will then actually flower the last week of November. Of course, they've been selected over the centuries, selected plants that flower in mid-November to early December because that's when the market is. They just naturally will flower at the right time for the Christmas market. It takes about five months to grow a poinsettia. If we wanted to sell in March, that would take us back to starting in November. If we start a poinsettia plant in November, the nights are already long. It means a very young plant would try to flower. We obviously have to get the plant bigger before it flowers. If it flowers, it doesn't get any bigger. November, we would turn lights on in the middle of the night. Ah, oh, it's only a 10-hour long night. Therefore, it's summer. I'm going to grow vegetatively. I'm just going to produce leaves and leaves and no flowers. Until I got eight weeks 
from my proposed market date. If I wanted to sell these plants on March 1st, then eight weeks before March 1st would be January 1st. Then I would turn those lights off. Now the night length is whatever it is in January, which would be again about 14 or 15 hours long. It's enough to signal the poinsettia to start the flowering process. Once that signal has started, it takes eight weeks to flower. Short days, January 1st, and I have plants flowering March 1st. Is there any hope for the homeowner who has bought a poinsettia to make it re-bloom again? There's not much hope. That seemed to be a common question I get. (laughs) I get that one all the time. It's not hard to keep the plant alive. Modern varieties hold up in the home environment pretty well through the winter months. So I can keep my poinsettia alive until the weather conditions are good in March or April, depending on how far north you are. I can take my December purchase plant, as long as I have it in a window that has some decent light levels, I can keep it alive as a house plant. It will still have red bracts up and through January, February, and into March. Then I put the plant outside on the porch till there's no longer a threat of frost. I just grow it on my deck front porch for all the summer and it will grow just fine. It will grow vegetatively. The days are long and the nights are short, so it's not getting a flowering signal. It just puts out leaves and leaves all through the summer. In September, it's going to get a signal to start to flower. The problem is in North America, we're also starting to experience our first frost, depending on what latitude you're at in September or October. It's going to die if it's outside. If you bring it inside, you have lights turned on in your house at night, you're going to fool the plant to thinking it's summer. It's not going to want to flower in a home environment. What you would have to do is put it in a room where there's good sunlight because it still needs light to grow, but you're not interrupting the night with your lamps. That's a little bit tricky for people to do. Even if you do that well, the challenge is there's often just not enough light in a home environment for the plant to grow well. It takes a lot of energy for a flower to form. If you had a a sunroom with a lot of light, you could get them to flower as long as you don't have lights on at night. They usually would be inferior looking. Flowers don't get as big. They may be slower to develop than one grown in a greenhouse just because the light levels in a greenhouse are so much better than in an indoor environment. You can keep them alive. You can try to flower them. And I do this every year, bring in plants. Actually, just brought them in last week. Problem is you bring them indoors unless you really got a a well-lit room. It's not bright enough to get very good flowering. You may get flowers, a little bit of red. It's fun, but don't ever expect to have a plant that is equivalent to what you'll see in the stores. The plant we see in the stores, they're multi-branching and they seem to hold their leaves well. You've got a good story about how that came about. Would you tell us that? 1960s, all the poinsettias that you would grow at that time really had come from more of a cut flower background. They were tall, lanky plants and they didn't branch. What I mean by that is they would typically have one stem with one flower at the top. You could try to pinch them. Gardeners, horticulturists know if you pinch a plant, you will stimulate axillary shoot development and you get more than one shoot. Poinsettia had what we call apical dominance. The the apex tended to be dominant over any of the lower branches. If you try to pinch an old 1950s version of a poinsettia, you would get one shoot. You never had a shrubby plant. In order to really sell these things commercially in a pot, we would have to put three or four plants in a pot, three or four plants each having one shoot. So you had a plant that looked okay. In the 1960s, what happened, there was a Norwegian grower. He grew poinsettias, amongst other things. And he walked into his greenhouse one day and he saw this one plant that was shrubbier than all the other plants in his greenhouse. It had a whole bunch of shoots, didn't have just one shoot. He didn't know what had happened, but he recognized that this was pretty unique. Eventually, that plant became commercialized. Poinsettias are propagated by cuttings. If you have some interesting characteristic in a plant, 
you take a cutting, it's a clone, so the cutting is going to perform just like the mother plant. You take a plant that is free branching and recognize, hey, this is an improvement over the existing plants. And he'd take cuttings and those cuttings would also be free branching. He actually licensed Eki, who I've mentioned before. They were the dominant player in the poinsettia market. They distributed poinsettias across North America every year from their location in Southern California. The Eki's took this free branching plant and started to sell it. The marketplace responded very favorably to this plant. This is 1970 through 1972 is when this really started to take off. If I'm a grower and I have a greenhouse, and if I can buy one plant and pinch it and produce a very nice finished plant for the consumer, that has vast economic repercussions compared to if I have to buy four plants and put them in the pot. One is obviously a lot cheaper than four. I'm buying a quarter of the number of plants to start out this crop every year. That's going to save me significant money. As soon as this free branching plant became available, every grower wanted to have it. They all switched from whatever varieties they were growing up to that time to this new variety. The variety's name was Annette Haig. The Norwegian grower who discovered it, his name was Termid Haig. He named it after his granddaughter. Annette Haig became the most important poinsettia across North America and all across Europe. That was the plant to grow. It sported quite freely, meaning if you grew 10,000 plants, 9,998 of them were red and all looked the same, but you would get an occasional shoot on an occasional plant that looked different. Specifically, it would change colors. A red plant would have all red flowers except one that mutated to white or to pink or to a marbly pattern or to a, we call it a jingle bells pattern where it's flecking. The plants would spontaneously sport from this Annette Haig. Throughout the 70s, if you grew poinsettias, you grew Annette Haig variety that had some other name attached to it. So there's Annette Haig hot pink, Annette Haig white, Annette Haig jingle bells. They're all in the same family. They all grew very similarly. So a grower could basically have one schedule, grow all the plants the same, but have a multiple assortment of colors. The Eki family was the only people in the world that had this plant. They had a patent on the plant. The only way you could legally propagate it and take cuttings would be to pay them a royalty on every cutting that you would propagate. The Eckies made very good money and the Haig family made very good money because every single poinsettia in the country and Europe basically was a sport of Annette Haig and they got two cents royalty on every single cutting. Of course, you're doing millions of cuttings, it adds up to some significant dollars. If you're in competition with them, what horticulturists always do, if you are a grower of begonias or geraniums and you have a competitor that has the best plant in the marketplace, what do you do? You need to catch up because no one's buying your old genetics. They need the new hot color, the new branching plant, the new whatever. This is what gets horticulturists excited all the time. What you do is you go steal their pollen. There's a plant that's the most beautiful poinsettia in the world. You go collect pollen from their plant and you cross it with another poinsettia. You're going to get some offspring typically that has that characteristic. Once you've made a sexual cross, you take pollen and fertilize the female flower. You collect seeds. It's no longer patented because you don't have control over the genetics. You can patent a vegetatively propagated plant. You take a cutting and that's patentable. You take seed production. That's not patentable. What do you do? You go steal some Annette Haig pollen, go buy a plant at Kmart, collect some pollen. You cross it with some other plants and you get that free branching characteristic into your plant. This is what we do all the time. What was unusual, seedlings collected from a Ned Haig pollen would never have this free branching characteristic. The competitors to the Eki Ranch that wanted to have something equal to a Ned Haig, a free branching poinsettia, they couldn't do it. 
nobody could get this free branching characteristic into a seedling. The Ekis couldn't do it either. They didn't know how to do it. They just knew that they could take cuttings from their plants and, and sell them, but they couldn't breed from Annette Haig. This was a peculiar phenomenon because you would assume this free branching characteristic was a heritable trait, something that could be passed on to the offspring, and it was not. There are some researchers at the University of Minnesota in about 1983. They decided that this would be a very good scientific study to try to figure out where this free branching characteristic was coming from because it clearly was not a genetic characteristic. It was not transferable through genes of the plant. There was something else causing this branching. They did experiments and they figured it out. Before I tell you what the answer is, I'll go back a little bit. In the mid-1970s, the Ekis actually figured out how to get this free-branching characteristic. They didn't understand what they were doing. They had visited a grower in Germany in the mid-1970s. They had found this small backyard German breeder, this guy with his house, and he had a little backyard greenhouse. Ekis visited him one summer. They saw that he had this free-branching characteristic in his plants. These were not an Ed Haig. These were his own plants that had this characteristic ask him how he got that. He didn't necessarily recognize the value of it. He didn't want to tell them what the answer was. They offered him $5,000 on the spot if he would tell them. And he sold him the concept. The deal was that he would get royalties on any plant that Eki would use his technology on to transfer this free branching characteristic. What he had figured out serendipitously was that if you grafted non-branching plants onto free branching rootstock, the branching characteristic would move from the free branching rootstock into the shoots or the scion of the grafted plant. Simply by grafting, you could transmit this characteristic from Annette Haig roots to whatever plant you grafted onto Annette Haig. Really, for the next 10 years, what the Ecke family did was they would take their old genetics, which didn't branch very well, but were very pretty plants, and they would graft them onto Annette Haig roots. Stock. They would get free branching plants. They would give them a totally different name from the old name. They market them for the next decade. They were the only people that were able to use this grafting technique in order to get free branching into new plants. For the 1970s into the mid-1980s, they could offer new plants every year, new varieties that would get growers excited about bigger, better flowers. All of these plants had free branching because they were the only people that knew how to get this characteristic into the new plants. It was such a secretive thing for them because they knew it was valuable. They didn't patent it because if you patent it, you have to release your technique. It wouldn't be legal for somebody to use your grafting technique, but people could do it. They kept this knowledge as a trade secret. They just had a few people in the company that knew the secret. They had a lot of greenhouses in the Encinitas, California. They would not do any of the grafting in their own greenhouses. They would go to the breeder's backyard. He had a little greenhouse and they would do all the grafting in his little backyard greenhouse because that was the only way they could keep employees and visitors to their greenhouses from seeing what they were doing. They were very successful. They had a monopoly on the poinsettia world. They had a monopoly through the 70s because they were the only ones with Annette Haig. Then they had a monopoly in through the 80s because they were the only one that knew how to get that characteristic into other plants. For 20 years, they really had no competition in the poinsettia world. They really pushed the, the marketing, as I mentioned earlier, and were responsible for much of the success of the plant. What actually caused the free branching was a scientific thing that I mentioned. University of Minnesota scientists actually figured out grafting was a way to get this characteristic from rootstock to another plant. They were not able to pinpoint what the causal organism was. It wasn't until 1991 that USDA scientists actually proved that the organism that was causing the branching was a living organism that was living within the poinsettia. It was a bacterium known as a phytoplasma. 
Phytoplasma is considered pathogens. They cause diseases in plants, and often those diseases, they'll cause a witch's broom. You get this proliferation of branching. All cases, it's detrimental to the plant's health. Peaches get peach X disease, which is a phytoplasma moving into the vascular tissue of the plant. It causes the peach plant to grow slowly and not become a viable commercial product. This phytoplasma, we don't know how it got into the poinsettia at all. Somehow found its way into the poinsettia. It conferred this commercially valuable trait in a way that no phytoplasma has ever done before or since. The trait was it caused this plant to branch freely. That has tremendous implications even in today's marketplace. Because if you think about it, if you're a breeder, you want to introduce newer, better traits. So you take parents that have desirable traits and you cross the pollen, male to a female flower. You collect the seeds. You grow out hundreds and thousands of seedlings. You look for new characteristics or improved characteristics amongst that huge population of seedlings. If you're a poinsettia breeder, that doesn't work so well because branching is not transmissible through genetics. As a breeder, you do these crosses, you grow out your hundreds and thousands of seedlings, but none of those plants will branch, meaning none of them are viable commercial products. What you have to do is you select seedlings that you like, then you have to graft them onto rootstock that contains phytoplasmas. Then that phytoplasma moves into the shoot of your seedling. It will be in that shoot for a hundred years as long as you keep taking cuttings. Because once it's moved in to the seedling, you can take cuttings off of that seedling for the next 10 years. Every cutting will have that phytoplasma in it. But you don't know what you have as a breeder until you've grafted it. It means every poinsettia that you're interested in introducing as a new and improved not only have to produce seedlings, but you have to graft those seedlings onto infected rootstock. Infected is the right word because this is really a pathogen. So you have to infect the seedlings to see how well they branch because the phytoplasma does have other effects on the plants. It can change the bract shape and size. It can change the bract color a little bit. It can make it a little more faded. It changes the vigor in the plant. You don't know what you have until you've grafted. Then you make selections. You can imagine if you're a soybean breeder, you can go out in the field and grow a million seedlings and look for an interesting plant. If you're a poinsettia breeder, you can only select from plants that you've actually grafted. It's a slow, time-consuming, expensive process. You don't have tens of thousands of grafted plants for your new selection. Makes it challenging. Audience should know that basically every poinsettia that they buy has at one point in their lifetime been intentionally infected with this phytoplasma. They've been grafted onto free branching rootstocks somewhere in their history. It may have been a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, but there's some point that every poinsettia has to be infected in order to have a free branching plant. Free branching is absolutely required to have this perfectly shaped plant that looks good in a pot. We know how we've got the modern poinsettia. How does it actually get to market from the cutting? What's the process? Every poinsettia is propagated by a cutting. We don't do them from seeds, and so they're all clones. No tissue culture? Uh, Nope, no tissue culture. What you do is you grow a stock plant, or sometimes called a mother plant, If you have a shrub in your yard that you shear every year, go in with your hedge trimmer, it produces a whole bunch of vegetative shoots after you trim it. That's what poinsettia stock plant looks like. It's a shrub with many small vegetative shoots. The grower is going to start season with is a cutting. We have to take cuttings from mother plants. Those mother plants are produced in Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala. Those are the main countries where we have either European or American businesses that are producing these mother plants. 
they'll have dozens of acres of mother plants. Every week go through and harvest the terminal stem that is an inch and a half to two inches long. They harvest those, they drop them into Ziploc bags or boxes with some moistened paper. They'll harvest cuttings from 7 a.m. till 1 p.m. They can harvest up to a million and a half cuttings per day at some of the larger facilities. So this is large-scale production. Those boxes of cuttings are carted off in a refrigerated truck to Guatemala City or wherever the main airport is. Overnight, they go to Miami. In Miami, they're inspected by the USDA Agriculture Plant Health Inspection Service. Then from Miami, they get distributed by FedEx primarily or by refrigerated truck across North America. From Miami to delivery at my greenhouse in Clemson, South Carolina takes 24 hours. The cuttings that I receive are 48 hours old, and this is in July. In July, I receive them. I take them out to the greenhouse. I propagate them in some sort of substrate. I'm inserting the cuttings into small cells, and it takes me a month in order for those to root and grow nicely. Then they become rooted cutting. Then that rooted cutting, I could potentially sell it to another grower and let them grow it, or I can grow it myself. I transplant it into a bigger pot, say a six-inch pot is a typical size for a poinsettia. Two to three weeks later, I pinch it to get free branching. There are usually five or six leaves below the pinch that remain on the plant because a nice poinsettia should have four to five flowers, get one flower per node. Now I'm in late August into early September. These four or five shoots per plant are putting on leaves every four or five days. A new leaf is formed on every shoot. Third, fourth week of September, what happens? The night length is sufficiently long that the plants say, ah, it's fall. It's time to start flowering. I start the flower initiation process. The terminus of each shoot then transitions from producing leaves to producing flowers. The terminus is called the apex. It's like an embryo that hasn't yet decided what it's going to differentiate into. A lot of rapid cell division is occurring in that little apex in the shoot tip. Once it gets a signal for flowering, that apex says, hey, I'm not putting on leaves anymore. I need to stop leaf production. I'm going to start reproductive flower production. So it starts to initiate bracts and cyathea. Then it takes eight to nine weeks after that initial initiation period in order for me to have a plant that is then big and showy and red and has fully developed flowers. That is naturally occurring in middle to late November. If I'm a grower, I have a hundred different varieties I can choose to grow in my greenhouse. And I will choose them based on what colors are popular. I may choose based on how big of a plant I want to sell. If I'm selling to churches, for example, to put in the front of the church for display, I want a really big plant, like a Costco plant. If I'm selling to Home Depot for Black Friday sales, I want a really small compact plant. I will choose different varieties based on how big of a final plant I want. Different varieties have different amounts of vigor. I can choose varieties on other characteristics, such as flowering time. We have varieties that will flower as early as November 1st and as late as December 5th. If my market opens up November 1st, I'll grow a variety that naturally will flower that week. A lot of growers, really, it's the second week of November where the market really starts to open up. I'll grow varieties that flower November 7th to the 10th, 14th. I'll grow another variety that flowers naturally from the 14th to the 21st of November. I'll grow another variety that grows and flowers naturally the last week of November. And then usually I'm trying to sweep up the floors in the greenhouse come the first week of December. If I'm a wholesale grower, I want my greenhouse empty December 1st if I can. Everything is already in the stores at that point.
a typical grower, if you figure they want an array of colors and sizes and shapes for each of the four weeks of November, means that they may have 20, 30 different varieties that they actually grow. You have white pinks and reds, not marbles and jingle bell types. I have those all available first week of November, second week of November, third week of November, fourth week. You know, all of a sudden, that's 16 plus varieties that I'm growing. Not all the same variety that you see in the stores. What can throw that process off? Because it seems like it's a very time-sensitive market. One of the biggest challenges, and this is my most current research project, we've been doing research on poinsettias for really 30 years. As the industry progresses, solve problems and they become old problems. New challenges are created based on the market interest and demand. We're always doing something in our greenhouses trying to understand how to grow this plant better. What we've been working on for the last four years is trying to solve the problem of heat delay. This is an issue where during the flower initiation process in late September, if we have high temperatures at that period of time, flowering will be interrupted. High temperatures means 82 Fahrenheit or higher, because we know once the initiation process occurs, it's going to take eight to nine weeks. But if initiation doesn't occur till October 5th, then that plant that we were planning on selling November 10th is not flowering until November 25th or even into early December. That really throws off the grower's ability to ship plants to their customers on the predetermined market dates. Here in advance, they know exactly how many plants are being shipped to Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart and to local garden centers and churches. Plant is delayed by one or two weeks. That's a huge issue on a crop that is only sold for three or four weeks. We've been trying to understand how to avoid heat delay and understand the conditions that cause heat delay. Weather patterns are less predictable. In 2018, 2017, we had two falls back to back that were really hot in the southeast. That's what got us going on this project because we had growers that really had significant economic losses because of the high temperatures. We've identified some techniques the growers can use to help avoid heat delay, help the breeders to select varieties that are more heat resistant so that they're not trying to sell a plant that the grower is not going to have success with. They understand the conditions that cause heat delay. They can screen for varieties during the, the screening process. Before a new variety is entered into the marketplace, they can identify this as being heat tolerant or not because they know now exactly what conditions they can use for that screening process. So that bad varieties just don't ever get introduced into the marketplace. Or at least if you have a heat sensitive variety, you try to sell it in Portland and Seattle. You don't try to sell it in Mobile, Alabama. Tell us about your adventure to see poinsettia in its native environment. And this is one of the more exciting things I've ever done, I think. Been working on poinsettia for a long time. Love the plant. It's interesting. The history of it's interesting. One of the growers I work with annually in North Carolina grows 4 million poinsettias a year. We see a lot of poinsettias. I've worked with breeders. That's all they do is breed poinsettias as a career. Talk to any of those. They've never seen a wild poinsettia before. So I thought, man, I would really like to see what one looks like in the wild. I reached out to a Mexican scientist who had published some work where he had collected wild-type poinsettias and done some genetic analysis of them. It took two years to organize a trip for my wife and I to go and meet him on the west coast of Mexico. Never met him, hadn't talked to him on the phone. They just exchanged a few emails. My wife and I got tickets. We flew into this little airport landing strip just on the Pacific coast of Mexico. We're going to meet this guy. He didn't know exactly what he looked like, but it was one of these airports where there's 20 people on the plane and it's the only flight that lands the whole day. 
there aren't that many people waiting for passengers. So we go in there and I see this guy with a, a piece of paper. He's holding it over his head. He had written Euphorbia and he had drawn a picture of the female flower of the poinsettia, which is unique to Euphorbias. Okay, this is my guy. I'm sure this was the guy I'm supposed to meet. He was an American guy. I didn't realize at the time. He had married a Mexican woman and taken on a, a Spanish name in his surname. American scientist that works in Mexico City. Quirky fellow, really interesting botanist type. He had no interest in commercial poinsettias at all. So he was truly a botanist. He greets us. We're walking to the van. It's an old beat-up VW van. that This looks like it's on its last legs and it's decades old. Bear in mind, we just met this guy. Like the first words out of his mouth, he says, how risk averse are you? We've been planning this trip for a couple years. We'll take some chances. But what are you referring to here? He held up his hands and he spread out his fingers and he goes, where I'm wanting to take you, it's right between where two drug cartels control. There's one drug cartel here and he held out his left hand and there's another one right here and he held out his right hand. Right in between here, we might be safe if we don't spend too much time in the forest. I said, oh my gosh. I looked at my wife and we've come a long way. We're not going to turn back now. They say, okay, we drive off and the next morning we get up early, drive a couple hours. In Mexico, if you drive inland from the coast, you immediately start to go up on the backbone of the Sierra Mountains. Poinsettia, where it's native to in Mexico, is just inland, perhaps 30, 40 miles up in elevation so that you're three, 4,000 feet above sea level could bit cooler than the tropical coastal weather. Drive up in here and we get out of the car. I had a little more romantic vision of what this trip was going to be like. I thought we were going to be like hiking for two days and then we'd find this one plant out in the forest. He said, no, they're like right alongside the road here. We walk up, it's like a ravine. It's a mountainous area. You have steep mountainsides that drop down into a three, four foot wide creek. It's just a little bit of space where you can walk alongside the creek. Otherwise, it's pretty steep walls around you. We walk upstream maybe 20 yards, and he points out the first poinsettia that's right there. It's up above us, like 30 or 40 feet up on the mountain wall. It's arching out over our heads almost. We walk up a little bit further, and there's more and more of them so that you could be standing in one spot and see 30 or 40 plants at one time. Some of them actually came down along the mountain stream. We're typically 10, 12 feet tall, one stem with one flower at the top of that stem. Since they're on these canyon walls, the stems are fairly weak, so they arch out over the water. It was beautiful. Brilliant red. The plants are big. The leaves are bigger than the varieties you buy at the store. The bracts are maybe an inch wide and three inches long. Very pretty plant. I collected one and brought it back and have flowered it in my greenhouse for the last 10 years now. It's starting to flower in my greenhouse right now. Everybody I take into the greenhouse says, it's a beautiful plant. Why don't we grow potted plants that look like that? It's not gaudy. You got to admit the poinsettia has been bred for the lowest common denominator for the consumer market. It's all red and it's a bit gaudy. It's really showy. And these wild ones are much more like uh, artistic looking. They're very cool. We spent a couple days with this guy, got to see a lot of plants. We didn't spend much time in the forest itself. We got out as quickly as we could after seeing some. Interestingly enough, too, the poinsettia, they're native all along that western backbone of the Sierra Madre Mountains on the west coast of Mexico and down into Guatemala a little bit. They're all red, except for there's one location in Michoacan that the whole ravine is white poinsettias. My scientist friend, he said, we can't go there. That was in the middle of where one of the drug cartels controlled. That was not a safe place to go. Didn't get to see that. Our host, his name was Dr. Mark Olson. He was very concerned about what he called biopiracy. 
That meant people coming into Mexico or some other countries and stealing plants, taking them without permission and commercializing them. Very concerned about that. Of course, that's what Joel Poinsett did, but probably it was okay in the 1800s to do that. Nowadays, you have to have agreements with local countries to extract plant material that you're planning on doing something with, like commercialize. What happened in the 1990s, there was an American scientist went down and collected a plant called the dogwood poinsettia. It's a case of modern biopiracy. The poinsettia that we know, its botanical name is Euphorbia pulcherima. Dogwood poinsettia is Euphorbia cornastra. Of course, we know dogwoods, the genus is cornus, so it makes sense that a species named cornastra would be called the dogwood poinsettia happens to be a white flowering species. There are only two known spots in Mexico where it's native to. There aren't very many of them. There are not many plants at either location. Whereas the red Euphorbia pulcherima is still pretty widely distributed. It is suffering from habitat destruction as people build homes and stuff. They're the only places you find wild ones these days are in these deep canyon ravines that nobody goes into because you can't live on the steep mountainsides. The dogwood poinsettia is interesting because it actually flowers in the summer, not the winter, and it has white bracts. There was an American scientist took one in the mid-1990s, and then she handed it over to a breeder in the U.S. who then worked with it some and was able to cross it with Euphorbia pulcherima and come up with a hybrid poinsettia. We call it Euphorbia ex-hybrida. These are the plants that we now grow for Susan Coleman Breast Cancer Awareness Month. They are the crosses between Carama and Cornastra. Because Cornastra was white and the poinsettia's Pulcarama is red, the crosses are usually shades of pinks or white. The white euphorbias are far superior to the additional Carama whites. If you go Christmas poinsettia shopping, reds are beautiful. The whites are usually yellowish or greenish. They're not really clear white. Same with the pinks are a little grayish or bluish. They're not often a real clear pink. But when you hybridize Euphorbia pulcherima, Euphorbia cornastra, you get very clear whites and very clear pastels and brilliant hot pinks. Colors are fantastic. The bracts are smaller and it looks a bit more like the wild type poinsettia. It's a different looking plant. More branches with smaller flowers. They're really cute. They're very popular in Japan in the spring. We have red ones, white ones, pink ones, but mostly you'll see some nice whites and pinks. They're not that common in our stores still, becoming more popular. It was an example of someone taking a plant out without permission and then it becoming commercialized. The Mexicans, are they're still a bit upset about Joel Poinsett. They really are. He's not a popular guy because they would say this happens a lot. The Americans steal something that they have and make a lot of money off of it, and no Mexicans ever made a dollar off of a poinsettia isn't entirely true, but we commercialized it, made a lot of money, and the Mexicans have not. That happened again in the 90s, where we took something that was not ours and commercialized it. People were making some money. They haven't made a whole lot of money on the hybrid euphorbia yet, but its day is coming. They're still a little bit upset about that. Is there anything new that's coming besides that? A few years ago, the yellow ones I thought had promise because they really had good fall color. There are breeders working on rebranching poinsettias that do not have phytoplasma in it. The idea is that you wouldn't actually have to pinch them and they would be free branching. There are varieties that have this characteristic. They're not successful yet. They're not good enough. The holy grail of new introductions would be if we ever had a poinsettia that was resistant to whiteflies. Whiteflies are a nuisance on poinsettias. Every one of them is susceptible. And if we could get a poinsettia that was resistant, that would be the home run worth millions of dollars. Everybody would want that. 
Yeah, I've opened up boxes in the garden center before and had a cloud of white flies come out. You just shut it back up. Yeah. What we've done is for a couple decades, we used neonicotinoids to control white flies. And now the retailers are saying we don't want growers to be using that product. We want to be more bee friendly. Growers are not able to use the neonicotinoids as much on their poinsettias. Good part of that is a lot of growers now use biological controls for whitefly. Use a lot less pesticide than we used to use because we used to have to spray for whiteflies every single week. Now it's a lot of biological controls for whitefly, and that's been a good thing for everybody. Let's take it to the consumer in the store. What do they need to look for when they select a poinsettia? A fresh poinsettia, you can tell it's fresh if the cyathea are full in the center of the flower. The red bracket should always be pretty, but in the center of that inflorescence, you've got the true flower. That's those little nubs that are green with a little bit of red, and they have a nectar gland on it to attract pollinators. They have a little drop of honeydew on each one of them. By the way, if you taste it, it tastes really good. It tastes just like honey. Very sweet. Those cyathea should all be present in the center of the flower. An older poinsettia will drop those cyathea out of the center of the flower. The bracts will still look fine, but you can just tell how fresh a plant is by whether it's loaded with cyathea in the center or not. If the cyathea have dropped out, they've been on the shelf too long. Plants are always beautiful when they leave the greenhouse. Put them in sleeves, you put them on carts, you put them in a store. Especially the larger retailers tend to leave the plants on the carts, leave them in the sleeves. It can be a rough environment. They also tend not to water them, so they dry out, wilt, and die. Ideally, you get plants that were recently shipped to the store and not ones that have been on a cart for two or three weeks. Earlier in November, you get fresher stuff than if you wait till mid-December and you're going to a box store. Usually it's older product by that time. If you go to an independent garden center, you can still have some pretty fresh product through December. But there was work done several years ago showing that poinsettias really help retailers indicate that now's the time to start shopping for Christmas. Poinsettia really is a harbinger of the Christmas season. Larger retailers bring in poinsettias as soon as they're ready to try to start pushing Christmas sales. When a consumer takes a plant home, you have to avoid cold temperatures. I remember when I was a kid, we had a fresh snowfall, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be pretty to put the poinsettia out in the snow and take a picture? Did that and found out the next day that wasn't such a good idea. Poinsettia do not take temperatures below 40, 45 very well. You got to avoid cold drafts and cold, icy conditions. Higher light you have, the better, but modern poinsettias take low light levels pretty well. You don't want to ever let them dry out entirely, keep the soil moist. One of the challenges we have, the poinsettia is usually sold in a sleeve or a pot cover. Pot cover holds water and pot can only hold maybe two cups of water and people will pour in four cups of water. Then the plant is basically floating in a swimming pool. That is a death knell for the poinsettia. You got to keep it moist, water it every three, four or five days in a home environment. Just add a cup at a time. You don't need to soak it. It should never be really dry. It should never be really wet. Higher light, the better. Avoid cold temperatures and you're good to go. Should look good for Christmas Day and all the way to St. Patrick's Day if you do a good job. Do you have any myths that you would like to smash regarding poinsettias? The most common one is that they are poisonous. I've eaten enough leaves to prove that they're not poisonous. Sometimes I'll do that in front of an audience just to get an awe. They don't taste that good is the problem. You really don't want to ever eat more than one anyway. The bracts, on the other hand, actually taste reasonably good. The bracts taste a bit citrusy, a little acidic. In Mexico, I've been to a restaurant that serves salads with poinsettia bracts in the salad to contrast with the green lettuce. They're not poisonous. The reason they're often thought to be poisonous is because they do ooze a white latex sap. Many plants that do that are poisonous plants. 
a lot of the house plants that we grow that are in the Aeraceae family, Diefenbachia, Pothos, Philodendron, a lot of those will ooze a latexy sap. A lot of euphorbias ooze a white latexy sap and are quite toxic. They can cause pretty severe dermatological responses. I've seen greenhouse workers working with the euphorbia that look like cacti. They're cutting them all day long and then break out in a bad rash. White latex usually is a signal of something not good. Plant is using that latex to discourage herbivores. Doesn't taste very good, pretty effective to keep herbivores from feeding. Poinsettia has that, but it does not happen to be poisonous. Jim, tell us how people might connect with you. The best way to reach out to me would be my email address, which is jfaust, J-F-A-U-S-T, at Clemson, C-L-E-M-S-O-N, dot E-D-U. This has been Episode 139, The Unexpected Journey of Cornsettias from Mexico to Our Living Rooms, with Jim Faust on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Jim. You're awesome goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time please generously share the garden question podcast check out our website thegardenquestion.com for links resources and where you can listen to every episode you will not want to miss a weekly episode so please subscribe to the garden question on your favorite listening app keep on designing building and growing a smarter garden that works